I just wanted to share with you guys this morning, Merry Christmas. Um, so, uh, yeah, it might, might uh, seem a little confusing a little bit, uh, but the truth is, is that uh, it's not a part of any lingering brain fog that I have. That's not to blame. Um, but I will declare to you again, Merry Christmas. So we don't usually hear that phrase in June very often. And um, we think about June here, and June actually is a month of celebrations. And I'll just name a few. Uh, one is we celebrate graduations like we just did with Emma this morning. We celebrate Father's Day in the month of June, and we celebrate Juneteenth National Independence Day when slaves were finally freed from Texas. We also celebrate today, which is National Cheese Day. Um, so uh, I had no idea. I had just found that out, and uh, I was quite pleased that I can evidently eat cheese without any kind of guilt. Um, and if you guys know this, we joke that in our house, some of our family members, their guilty pleasure is ice cream. My guilty pleasure is cheese. So um, it's still dairy product, but put a candle on it, and I'd be happy for that. But the truth is, is that Christmas isn't one of the things that we celebrate often or even mention in June. And while we formally celebrate Christmas in December, Christmas should be at the forefront of our minds each and every day. God who humbled himself and took on flesh for the purpose of redeeming mankind. That's what Christmas is about. God in flesh. And so this morning, we're going to continue in our sermon series on Luke. And it is this good news that God humbled himself, took on flesh for the purpose of our redemption, which brings great joy to us. So let's go ahead and stand this morning as we, we look at Luke chapter 2. We're going to be reading the first 20 verses of Luke chapter 2. And this is what it says. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making known this good news. The good news of a Savior. The good news of Christ our Lord. Father, this morning may we respond with joy to this good news. May we respond with faith to this good news. May we stand in amazement because of this good news. Father, may the Christmas story never become routine. But may it be a reminder of your goodness and mercy to us. Father, take the truth of your word today and plant it on our heart. Sanctify us through it. And for some, save us through it. Lord, bring your word with power this morning. Spirit, move freely. Unhindered in our lives. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. So as we look at this story this morning, the Christmas story is something we can often hear. We can hear it in different contexts. We can allow it to fly by. It's one of those things that familiarity kind of breeds apathy. We hear it, but we don't necessarily see how it fully applies to our life. We have wonderful themes of peace and, and hope and we talk about angels and shepherds, wise men, all part of the Christmas story. But what happens at Christmas is often these texts are actually separated out and taught independent of the greater text as a whole, of the entirety of the book. Now, it's important for us to remember that Luke says in chapter 1 that he is trying to put forth to Theophilus, most likely a, a, a government leader or a government official who has come to faith, and we're told after one of Luke that he's writing to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, the beauty of the Gospel of Luke is that Luke writes in a very linear or progressive way. And his point is to make clear with certainty that this is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he is God in flesh. And so this morning we're looking at the idea that God makes known the good news of Christ's birth to bring life-altering joy to the world. God makes known the good news of Christ's birth to bring life-altering joy to the world. This news of this birth brings joy. Now, most births bring joy. There are some that don't, 
And what I mean by that is that there are some who desire or are not wanting to have a child, and it can bring despondency. But for most, birth actually brings joy. And God has designed birth to bring joy. But as unique as each of us are, none of us would say that our birth provided life-altering joy, right? We might actually say life-altering sleep patterns, life-altering disruptions, but seldom will we say life-altering joy to the world. Jesus' birth brings life-altering joy to the world. That's what this passage is driving home, that it can be trusted who Jesus is. Now, the good news of the gospel is often conveyed in terms of salvation apart from the hope, joy, and peace which it brings. And God desires his people to live in the full blessing of salvation, not simply in the reality of salvation. Somehow we've come to a place where we separate our salvation from our hope, peace, and joy. We, we talk about salvation in terms of an eternal reality rather than a present outcome. That our salvation should produce in us hope. It should produce in us joy. It should produce in us peace. And where there is joy, there is going to be peace. And where there is joy, there's going to be hope. And vice versa, where there is hope, there's going to be joy and there's going to be peace. And where there is peace, there's going to be joy and there's going to be hope. Because they are all outworkings of our own salvation. It's kind of like the gospel of salvation being presented apart from the resurrection of the dead. The truth is, is that every religion speaks about a life in which you have this utopia. Christianity says it's a reality. But the reality is not found in some greater mindset or greater work. It's found in the person and work of Jesus who overcomes the world and restores and renews the heaven and earth. And we are raised up with Christ. This is good news. In the same way, we can often speak about eternal life apart from the hope, joy, and peace that it brings, not tomorrow, but today. And so, <clears throat> we're told in verse 1 and 2, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, Caesar Augustus, his birth name was Octavian, and Octavian was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. A year after being adopted, Julius Caesar was murdered, and Octavian began his contested reign in 44 BC. By 30 BC, he had overcome those who were serving alongside him and battling, Mark Antony being one. And he became, really, in essence, the ruler of the world. He actually brought a level of peace to the Roman Empire by destroying all of their enemies. And it was during that time that he took on the name Caesar Augustus, which means sacred one. 
And so throughout the world, Caesar Augustus was seen as the ruler of the world, the most powerful, the most, in many ways, initially brutal. But through that brutality, had brought about some peace. Rome took a census every 14 years that required Jewish males to go back to the town of their fathers. And during that time, they would provide their name, their family members, their profession or their occupation, and their property. And it was for military and tax purposes. At the same time that this is occurring, Quirinius is the governor in Syria. Now, what does this have to do with anything of the birth story of Jesus? Luke is linking it to specific, verifiable, historical facts. That's what he's doing. Luke is saying these are real people and real things. And I want you to understand that the birth of Jesus is a real event. I want you to believe it to be true. Now, in verse 4 through 7, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in an anger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, little did Caesar Augustus know that his decree for the registration was actually a part of God's sovereign plan for the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem and thus fulfill the word of God. God took something secular and used it for his purposes, to bring about his purposes. He does it all the time. We can see that in our own culture today. John 7, 42 says, Has not the scripture said that the Christ is the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So Joseph coming to Bethlehem and Jesus being born there is actually fulfillment of Scripture. So he's saying, listen, not only can you believe the historical record, but you can believe the biblical record. I want you to know that these things can be trusted. You can know with certainty because the historical record is accurate and the biblical record is accurate. Now, the promised Messiah then is born and wrapped in swaddling claws. That's just torn strips of clothing. We kind of think of a baby being swaddled today. We think of swaddling claws as kind of like, oh, they've got this short little towel that goes nicely neat around a baby. Now, this was torn clothing. And then he was laid in a manger, an animal trough, something that cows drank from and fed from. If you think of this part of the story, it's kind of unique, huh? If you just read verses 1 through 7, you should be walking away depressed. This young couple goes, can't find any place to stay. They have a baby. They have nothing to put them in except for torn cloth and then an animal trough. 
Woo! Let's read more of that story. I got enough sadness in my life, I don't need to hear about that, right? But the good news is the story doesn't end there. The story continues. In verse 8 and 9 it says, And in the same region there were shepherds in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. That word actually in Greek means panic. They were startled. Now, the truth is is that this is the first time that we're seeing right in the New Testament when the angel of the Lord is actually appearing. We saw the angel appear to Zechariah, and we saw the angel speak to Mary. And with Zechariah, it produced fear. The shepherds, it's producing fear because historically, the angels presented themselves at a time of judgment. So imagine this. The shepherds are in the field in a region near Bethlehem. And ripping through the darkness is an angel. And the glory of the Lord shone around him. Now, shepherds were the outcasts. They couldn't even go and provide sacrifices because they were considered unclean. And the glory of the Lord is shining. Their first thought is what? Judgment. Now, some believe that these, these shepherds were actually tending to the, the temple or sacrificial sheep. I don't know that that's actually true. But the point being this, they had a deep understanding of the need for redemption. They understood the value of sheep and the sheep that were being sacrificed regularly for the sin of the people. And so, the angel rips through the night and these shepherds are startled awake They're actually not sleeping, but they're startled awake, meaning now they see everything. And the angel of the Lord says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Wow. The angel looks at them and says, fear not. You see, great joy is always greater than great fear. And great joy, which is greater than great fear, equals good news. The joy of the Lord will trump our fear. Because the joy of the Lord is not based in the circumstances, the situations that we find ourselves, but the joy of the Lord is found in the Lord. And I don't think it's an accident here of the terminology that's actually used. The angel is saying to him, listen, whatever you're fearful of, I've got news for you that will bring so much joy you'll never even remember the fear. I think it's one of the reasons that Paul says in Romans uh, 8 when he says that our suffering is like birth pangs. That when the glory comes, we will never even remember the suffering of this world. The worst suffering that we will ever experience in the life of the believer is here on earth. And his glory, his presence, being in his presence will be so great 
that it will be as if you got a splinter. The person's body who's been burned 90%, who knows Jesus, that won't even hold, for no pun intended, a candle to the glory of God. Meaning it will be forgotten. In the same way that a mother is able to look back and say the pain was worth having this child. And the pain, while maybe not entirely forgotten, in relation to the child is so minimal. The same is true when we will stand before the Lord. Now for the unsaved, the worst pain that you experience in this life is the best pain that you will ever experience in eternity. Meaning this, God says that the the eternity apart from God, the pain of that life, is so destructive and so powerful that that too, the worst pain in this life, is a splinter compared to the two-by-four that's coming. It's important that we understand that. Because the gospel that we have is actually providing us great joy, which is greater than any fear. And brings us to good news. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 makes this clear when it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Great joy trumps great fear. And great joy that trumps great fear is good news. That's the gospel. It means that when we walk in his joy, we don't have to be fearful. When we walk in his joy, we can be satisfied. When we walk in his joy, we can experience the hope and peace that he designed. So what is the good news of great joy made known? What's the good news of great joy made known? It's a Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born. A Savior, Christ the Lord, has been born. The one who saves us. Christ, the Messiah and Lord, the one who is sovereign over all. That is who has been born. John 12, 44 through 48 says, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but instead in who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. The Savior is born. We're not waiting for a Savior to come. The Savior has already come. 
And that Savior is the promised Messiah, and that Savior is Lord. He is the ruler over all things. He is the, the God in heaven who oversees, creates. And he is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The good news is that we have a Savior and he is alive. The good news is that Savior came and ripped through darkness and brought light in the midst of that darkness. Now the angel gives them a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now this sign is actually to help them identify the Messiah. It's not every day that you see a baby put in an animal trough and torn clothing. But you can imagine for a moment that these shepherds were probably somewhat baffled. You're saying that the Messiah has been born, but this Messiah is born in poverty, wrapped in torn clothes, lying in this animal trough. Really? Think about that for a minute. Think about these shepherds, what they must have been going through. We're tending our sheep at night. It's dark. We're being watchful. We're minding our business. We smell like animals. Angel tears through the night. The glory of the Lord fills them. We're terrified. The angel says, don't be terrified. I'm bringing you great good news of great joy. And let me tell you, a Savior has been born. And these shepherds, they don't question it. Oh, by the way, I'm going to give you a sign. This Savior, this promised Messiah, the King that we've spoken about, you're going to find him in torn cloths, not in really a stable, most likely, more likely a cave. And by the way, he's lying in an animal trough. Now you can imagine the baffling minds that were going on with the shepherds here. I think I would be overwhelmed. I don't know about you, but I would be overwhelmed by this story. And immediately after saying this, it says, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Now, to understand a multitude of the heavenly hosts, this terminology is actually used to describe the army of God. It is as if every angelic being was present for this declaration. This is not just six choir members standing on the back. This is the entire landscape covered with God's angelic army. That's an awesome thing. And they are doing what? They are declaring praise. You see, the birth of Jesus is confirmed both on earth and in heaven. The birth of Jesus is confirmed on earth and in heaven. If there was any question whether this was the Messiah, the question remained no more. Because heaven itself declared him as Lord. If there was any question whether this was just a human baby, it was gone. 
So both his humanity and his deity are affirmed in this moment. Both through the physical sign given to the shepherds and then through the declaration of praise by the heavenly. Revelation 5.13 points out, speaking of the angels, and I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The angels only worship one, and that one is God. They do not worship any other being. And yet, they worshiped this Messiah. Glory to God in the highest and peace among those in whom he is well pleased. God being glorified and his peace being declared made available today. Now, in whom is he well pleased? Well, Hebrews eleven six says this, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. We cannot please God apart from faith. The only way to please God is through faith. Faith in Him. That's how we please God. Through our faith in Him. Too often we want to try to please God in our own works. And so we do it apart from faith. When we walk in faith, we do so trusting that Jesus is everything that I need for my salvation, for my hope, for my peace, for my joy, and for my sanctification, how I grow. The only way to please God is through faith. So what's the joyful response to this good news then? You see, the shepherds clearly responded in joy. This joy that was just offered to them, it's present. And the first aspect of this joyful response to this good news is obedient and testifying faith. Obedient and testifying faith. It says, when the angels went away from them into, heavens, into, the, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. What do they do? The angels leave. There's no longer a question, this is the Messiah, but we want to go see it. They want to experience what God has just revealed to them, what God has made known. Very real in our own life today. God reveals things all the time through his word. Do we want to experience that today? Do we want to experience the promises in his word that he grants us? If we do, it begins with obedient faith. It says, God, this isn't the way that I would do this, but I'm going to walk with you anyway. God, I actually don't like what you're walking me through, 
but I'm going to do it anyway. These shepherds were tending their sheep. They had to walk some distance to get there. They leave their sheep to come and see the Messiah. That's a joyful response. When we're discontent in our life, when we can't find contentment, we will never experience God's joy. And in so doing, we will struggle to be obedient in faith. Our contentment or lack thereof will either allow us to be obedient to the Lord or make it far more difficult to be obedient to the Lord. In fact, I would argue that people who are discontent find it exceptionally difficult to be obedient to the Lord because they are never satisfied in Christ. He's not enough. You want attention from the opposite sex? You'll try to get it there. You want attention from an affirmation from work? You'll try to get it there. New car or new things or new toys or whatever it is, you'll try to find it there. But that pursuit is joyless. It's marked by a a series of discontentment. It doesn't mean there aren't times and seasons for those things in terms of saying it's okay to say, yeah, I'd like a new house. But if my contentment is wrapped up in the things of this life and in this world, my joy will never fully exist. God's joy is found in a person, and that is in Jesus. And I have to be satisfied in Jesus to experience the fullness of his joy. If I'm lacking joy, if I'm discontent, I will step into things that are disobedient to God's word because I try to seek those things for joy rather than the Lord for joy. Happens. Happens all the time. Why do you pursue sin when you know you shouldn't pursue sin? It's because in that moment, sin seems to offer you something that it can't but you buy the lie, right? We all do. That's why Paul could say that he was doing the things that he didn't want to do. But when we look at joy, the joy of the Lord, and find our joy in the Lord, obedient faith is the natural outcome. That's why joy matters. Like when somebody says, well, I'm just kind of an Eeyore. Why does it matter? What does it bother you? It doesn't affect you. Yes, it does. It affects everybody, but it affects you the most. Because if you're a grumbler or you're discontent, you're actually pushing against the very things that God has given you to walk in obedience with the Lord. And when you're discontent, you'll start to look for other answers rather than finding your contentment in Christ. And then notice that this faith is a testifying faith. They share everything that the Lord has told them. Do we? When you're happy about something, when something good happens, what's the thing you want to do? All you want to do is share what happened. In fact, sometimes you almost feel guilty when something good happens because you're like, "Ah, I don't want to make that person feel bad because I know they're walking through this and this just seems like, I don't want to discourage him because of the goodness that I've experienced in my life through the Lord. 
It's a testifying faith. We share the goodness of the Lord. We share the joy of the Lord. Why? Because it's designed to encourage. It's designed to, to cause people to respond to the work of the Lord. We should be sharing that one to another. After service today, we should be sharing the things that the Lord has done in our life. That should be a part of our body life. And beyond that, we should be then sharing with people who don't know Jesus. This joy should be compelling us to witness, to share our faith. I think one of the reasons the church in America specifically has lost its witness in many or its desire to witness is it's become far more comfortable in its own community trying to preserve itself rather than seeing that this joy is actually to be brought to the entirety of the world. We try to preserve it and hold on to it rather than give it. You want to look at a culture that's discontent? The answer you have is you have joy. In a world that's full of despondency and despair and anxiety, we have joy. We have the answer. We have what people are looking for. But so many times, we don't walk in that ourselves. And because of that, we stop testifying to our faith. But if we actually see what God has done, have we ever had a pronouncement of the heavenly host over us saying this is what's happened? Probably most of us haven't had that. But we've had other little things. We've had where God has spoken to us through a scripture and given us hope. We've had times where we've seen God meet our needs when we never thought it was even possible. We've seen times where God has brought financial provision in ways that were completely unthinkable. We've seen our, families, our family members' lives changed by the gospel in ways that we would have never dreamed. These are the things we testify to. These are the things that bring joy. And when we testify and we see that God is at work and then we are at work, we're experiencing the joy of the Lord because he's at work, we then testify to those things. But our eyes can get so focused on the culture and on the despair and the things that are difficult that when that joy is lost, we stop having this testifying faith. John 6, 28 through 31 and verse 35 says this, Then what they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 4 to 35 continues. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our faith in Christ is an obedient, testifying faith when joy is at work in our lives. If all salvation is, is an insurance card against hell, we've missed it. God has given the kiss, the keys to his kingdom today, not tomorrow. Here's the thing. We can live in the joy of Christ today and the blessing of the fullness of his salvation, knowing that there is something that's even greater to come. Not waiting for the greater to come 
but living in the great today, knowing that there will be someday something that's even greater. But today, there is great joy. Not maybe so much so okay, so, so good joy. Great joy. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 is a passage that some are familiar with. And it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Honestly, how many of us are doing this in reality? How often is this at the forefront of our heart and minds? To have a faith that is testifying, not just a faith that is enduring. Who am I praying for regularly that they might know Jesus? How am I praying that God might use me to speak into specific people's lives? And what if that means that there is a physical cost to my life to do it? You see, this joy of the good news compels us to testify in faith. The second response that we see here to this joyful good news then is one of awe, meditation, and praise. One of awe, meditation, and praise. When you hear the Christmas story, what honestly goes through your mind? Is it a story that we've heard before? That's a nice story. It kind of gives you warms and fuzzies because you remember it as a child. It speaks of the hot chocolate that's coming around and the snow falling. Or does it produce awe and meditation and praise? One of the challenges of being in a culture which accepts Christianity or Christian traditions is that those things can become so familiar that they lose their uniqueness. We need to see this story and realize the good news, the gospel that Jesus has come, God in flesh, to redeem mankind is to produce in us awe. It says that those who heard the story wondered. That word is actually that they were amazed in Greek. They were amazed. They were in awe. When we look at the birth story of Jesus, our response should be one of awe. And when we walk in it, understanding that God has given us this joy, then we begin to see all the ways that God is working. And it produces in us awe. Now, Mary, it says that she treasured these things in her heart and pondered them. She meditated on them. I want to encourage you that if you don't know Jesus today, that my hope is that you are standing in awe right now of this story, that God sent a Savior into the world, He Himself in flesh, for you and for me, so that we might have life eternally with Him. Not life that is just a doldrum going through, but a life that's has hope and peace and joy that is founded and rooted in him, which is different than happiness and comfort. The disciples didn't have a lot of comfort. And they certainly had many times which we would say were not happy. But they were joyful and hopeful and peaceful. 
because it was not found in their circumstances. It was found in the person of Jesus. It was found in this infant who then grew up and became our Savior by dying and rising again. And then notice the shepherd's response. They go away praising God. They go away praising God for what has been revealed to them and the word that has been spoken. How often do we genuinely praise God for his word? It's only been 500 years since we've had access to this on any kind of real level. What do I mean by that? Up until the printing press, the only way to know Scripture was to memorize Scripture, was to hear it spoken and then to memorize it. And maybe that was a huge advantage, but today we have it in writing, the whole counsel of God. In our joy, joyful peace in response to this is that we look at God's word and we respond with praise. We respond to the gospel with praise. We respond with awe and we respond with meditation. Have you ever pondered this birth story, sat on it and thought about it, and what it really means that God came in flesh? The king of all the world, of all creation, taking on human flesh for our sake, humbling himself, knowing full well that he is the creator and yet was being tortured and beaten and put to death for our sin. when we deserved nothing but the result of that sin. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful Christ. What a wonderful Lord. Chris Benfield puts it simply, there could be no doubt that they had experienced something wonderful and marvelous. Even though their minds could not comprehend it all, they rejoiced and meditated upon these things. John Calvin goes a step further and he says, their zeal in glorifying and praising God is an implied reproof of our apathy or laziness, or rather our ingratitude. If the cradle of Christ had such an effect upon them as to make them rise from the stable and the manger to heaven, how much more powerful ought the death and resurrection of Christ be in raising us to God? May that be our focus this morning, that this Christmas story is a great joy that overcomes great fear because of the good news that we have a Savior who is born and who is living today. And that from that, from that joy, we live a life of obedient and, terif- and, and testifying faith, not trying harder to do it, but allowing the Spirit to guide us in it as we rejoice in who the Lord is and what the Lord has done. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the story, this Christmas story that we are so often familiar with and yet give, honestly, God, not enough reflection time to. Father, forgive us for seeing this story more casually than we ought and place upon us, God, the burden for great joy that we might see your salvation is offering great joy. 
not just a future eternity. Lord, move amongst us now as we respond and praise together. And we ask this in your name. Amen.